Well, good morning, Northview. It's so good to have all of you here today. Thank you for sharing your weekend with us. For those of you that are our guests, Northview's one church in 13 different locations. If you don't have a church home, we'd be honored to have you come and be a part of all that God is doing. At all of our campuses, could we just give a big shout out to our Benford campus and let them know how much we love them? <clears throat> yeah. We're proud of you, Benford. You know, Sandy and I, one of the privileges we have is we get to go around to some of those campuses and to greet them on occasion when I'm not, not speaking. And a couple years ago, I think we were in uh, Lafayette, Greater Lafayette, and uh, a guy came up to me and said, uh, well, first of all, when I got up and gave a greeting, I introduced Sandy. And then afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, it was really good to meet your wife. He said, we've heard you talk about her for years, but we just believed she was a figment of your imagination. <laughs> so to see that she really exists is a, is a big deal. You know, there's some truth in that because pastors' wives are the one person that really don't get much recognition in church. So I just wanted to say thank you for recognizing my wife today. I can't tell you guys how important she is to my ministry. I mean, seriously, she's my soulmate, she's my confidant, she's my encourager and my best friend. She's my partner in ministry. She really is an amazing wife. She's an amazing mother and grandmother. And I can tell you, I think she's one of the best pastor's wife I have ever met before. <laughs> Sandy and I have been married for 47 years. We were only 10 years old when we got married. <clears throat> but we've been in ministry, full-time ministry, for 36 years. Sandy, I hope you know that I think you're an amazing woman. I could never have done this without you. Your love for God um, inspires me and it encourages me. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the way you've loved me and the way that you've loved the people of Northview. I love you. <clears throat> so this past uh, week, I've had that crud that's going around that many of you have probably had already. And so I had laryngitis. I lost my voice. Quickly called the doctor and said, I'm up this weekend. I need to be able to talk. And so he gave me a steroid. My voice came back uh, the day before yesterday. And so he called me yesterday morning and he said, I can't promise you that it's going to hold out for three services. So we're going to make it as long as we can. And if it stops and I begin to whisper, don't think I'm trying to get you to lean in. I just, <laughs> I just can't talk. But I'm anxious to get started, so let me pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. You're an amazing God. And what an incredible privilege it is to be able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you have blessed Northview Church throughout the years and the way you continue to bless us. And I'm thankful and grateful for CJ and that you've brought him to Northview Church for a time such as this. And continue to pray your blessings and favor would be upon them. Lord, I, I'm so grateful for not only what you're doing at Northview, but I'm grateful for what you're doing in churches all throughout central Indiana. <clears throat> Father, I pray for specifically today for Harvest Church. I thank you for that great congregation and the way that you're moving through them. And I pray that your blessings and favor would be upon them and their pastor, Brian White. I'm so grateful for his friendship. Now, God, we love you and praise you. And I ask now that as we get into your word today, that you would open up our eyes and ears to see and hear how the Spirit wants to move in our life. Thanks, God. We love you and praise you. We just ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So guys, I would tell you that I, I feel like I'm in a good season of life. I'm in a good place in my relationship with God. As I just shared with you, I have an amazing wife. My health has been good. They tell me that I'm in good shape for my age. You may not know, I'm 85 years old. <laughs> my kids and seven grandkids all live within 15 minutes of our home. We have all kinds of great friends. We've been blessed financially. I've been able to work. I can hear me on this. I've been able to work with the most incredible staff for all these years. And I've gotten to pastor an amazing growing church that's making a huge difference in the kingdom of God. So, I mean, for that, I just want to say, yay, God. But friends, listen to me. Not every season of life has been that way. For instance, I, I can just share with you, when 2020 rolled around um, and a microscopic virus paralyzed our entire world, all of a sudden, I had to make some leadership decisions that I've never had to face before. I had to decide whether I was going to close all of our campuses and go online. Guys, I can just say, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I would have to make that kind of a decision. So I made a decision for what I thought was only going to be for just a couple of weeks, but it ended up being about six months. During that time, I got all kinds of emails telling me that if I didn't open the church back up, that they were going to find another church. Then when I did open the church back up, the emails switched, and then all of a sudden I got emails telling me how irresponsible I was being as a pastor and that they were going to find another church. And if that was not enough during that same time, racism once again raised its ugly head when an officer's knee would take out the life of a black man, which in turn would set off some very deep hurt and anger across our nation. Once again, I had to decide, do I speak up against racism or do I remain quiet? I made the choice to speak up. And again, the emails began to fill my inbox on both sides, mind you. Some saying I said way too much while other people saying I hadn't said enough. Oh, and then why not let's throw in an emotionally charged election that would polarize a nation with both sides expecting me to speak up. And yet I can tell you I've always refused to talk about politics from the pulpit because I'm trying to disciple a church in a biblical worldview and not a political worldview. <clears throat> so we reopened the building and I thought everything would calm down and then facial masks became the next polarizing issue. In each situation, guys, the point that I'm trying to make, in each situation, I was forced to decide what I was going to do as the pastor or as the leader of this church. And I'm just saying for me, it was a reminder that life has a lot of twists and turns. And to be honest, it's hard to thrive under pressure. So I guess I would throw it back to you. When did you realize life was not going to turn out the way you thought? and you would have to make some hard decision. Listen, difficulties are a normal part of life. We all know that's true. Some are professional, some personal, but friends, we all have difficult times. Those times you wonder if you're gonna get past it. Those times you wonder if you're even gonna survive it. Maybe your spouse cheated. Maybe your parents divorced. Maybe your health failed or you were downsized. I know for some it feels like it's a continuous cycle of dark days. 
And guys, I, I would just say, you don't have to be in a harsh or horrible environment to encounter difficult times. A great example of what I mean is Queen Esther. She was this young, beautiful queen who lived a pretty cushy life, but she was soon faced with a difficult situation and had to decide if she was going to speak up for her people or if she was going to remain quiet. She had to decide if she was going to conform or transform. Listen, guys, I think if God had a six-letter word for encouragement, it would be spelled E-S-T-H-E-R. The book that bears her name was written for the emotionally weary. It was written, guys, for you and me. It was written for anyone that might feel outnumbered by their enemies or overrun by their fears. It was written as an example of someone who struggled and yet thrived under pressure. Peter also talks about the importance of thriving under pressure. Look at it in 1 Peter. He says, but you are not like that. For you are a chosen people, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You see, friends, what I want you to see in Esther's story is that you were made for more than, than flashy parties and a comfortable life. You were created by an almighty God who has equipped you and gifted you to make a significant difference in your world for his kingdom. Listen, Guys, it's not just the responsibility of pastors. Oftentimes, that's what we think. We think, well, you know, it's the pastor's job to do that. It's the elder's job to do that. But what we have to recognize is the Scripture is true for every single one of us that calls ourselves a believer. Peter said you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, God's special possession. You are a people of God, and he wants to use you to make a significant difference with the people that you rub shoulders with day in and day out. Listen, I want you to see that God's solutions come through people of courage. Okay, so the setting to this amazing story starts in the palace of Susa, the capital city of Persia. Now, there are five primary characters in our story. There's King Xerxes, there's Queen Vashti who loses her throne, there's an orphan girl named Esther who would become the new king, and Esther's uncle Mordecai who loved God. And of course, every story has to have a villain, and his name is Haman. It's an incredible story. And guys, I would encourage you to read the entire book of Esther. I'm just going to give you an overview today, but there is so much to this incredible book, and I would encourage you to read it. But today, let's just just take an overview. This was nearly 500 years before Christ, and it was 50 years after Ezra had led the Jews back to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon. Many of the Jews now lived in the land of Persia under the reign of King Xerxes, who was the leader of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, which would make him, of course, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and he knew it. Being the most powerful man in the world, he could afford to throw the granddaddy of all parties, and the one that's talked about in our story lasted for six 
months. You ever been to a party that lasted for six months? I mean, come on, how many chips and guacamole can a person eat in six months? And then on the last day of the party, the king, who most likely was drunk as a skunk, demanded that Queen Vashti be brought out wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty. Now, guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. The Scripture does not talk about this, but according to several old uh, commentaries on Esther, Xerxes most likely told his queen to enter the room wearing nothing but her crown, literally nothing but her crown. You say, why the crown? Because the crown signified hands off. She's the queen. But she refused his request. Of course, it would explain why she refused his request, right? Well, her refusal ticked off the king. He didn't want to tick off the king. So he ordered her banished from the kingdom, and we don't hear from Queen Vashti again. Now, guys, I know she only had a small part in this story, but I just got to tell you, I like her. I mean, here she is, the queen. She lived in a castle. She had servants and clothes and jewels and everything else that she could ever want. And yet in this moment where she was asked to compromise her own value system, she takes a stand and says, no, I'm not doing that. Even if it meant losing everything, which in fact she did. So yeah, I like this lady. She was a woman of moral character and conviction. So friends, how do you respond when asked to compromise your faith or your Christian values? Would you lie on an expense report or a tax return to save a little bit of money? Would you lie to close a deal? Would you give in to sex with someone you're dating in fear you might lose this person? In other words, what conditions or situations might tempt you to compromise your values? Queen Vashti, she lost everything, but she remained true to herself and kept her integrity. I'm just telling you guys, that's worth so much more than dollars and cents. Well, about four years goes by, and King Xerxes decides it's time to find another queen. So his buddies come around, and they suggest that he should have a Miss Persia pageant so he could select a beautiful woman. We see it in chapter 2, verse 4. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. Doesn't that sound like an idea a bunch of guys would come up with? And guys, let me just say this. If you think your wife takes a long time getting ready in the morning, these women had to undergo 12 months of beauty treatments. I mean, it's like, seriously, honey, we have to go. It's been 10 months already. Now, this is where we see, this is where we first see Esther. She's a beautiful young lady that had been raised by her cousin Mordecai after her parents had died. When the king saw Esther, let's just say he immediately gave her the final rose. She became his queen. And I should add at this point, no one even knows that she's Jewish. The king, he doesn't bother to ask. And it's also at this point that we begin to see the invisible hand of God at work behind the scenes. Friends, it's a great example, listen to me, it's a great example of why it's important to have faith in God even when things don't make sense. In Proverbs, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and always submit to him and he will make your path straight. What we have to recognize, guys, is that God is always at work in our life, even though we can't see him. We talk a lot about uh, the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is the invisible realm where God's at work. The lower story is the visible realm where you and I are today. 
And what we have to know is that even though we can't see it, God is at work in our life, which is why we need to trust him. He always has a plan, and he's working that plan even when we can't see it. One day, Mordecai is sitting outside one of the doors of the king's palace, and he overhears two disgruntled employees that are talking about how they were planning to assassinate the king. So Mordecai sends a note to Esther telling her to go warn the king. Esther tells the king, gives credit to Mordecai. The king then has the two conspirators put to death. Now, this is where our villain Haman comes into the story. Haman is the king's chief of staff. He's a slimy character, and he's an Amalekite. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and they were always, whenever you read about the Amalekites in the Old Testament, they were always enemies of God's people. He's an arrogant man who demands that everyone should bow down when he walks in the room. And everyone, in fact, does, except for Mordecai. He was a Jew and committed to bow to no one but his God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, as you can imagine, Haman went ballistic at the refusal of this man to bow down. Not only would Mordecai not bow, but he was also a Jew, and Haman hated the Jews. In fact, he hated them so much, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews who were scattered throughout the Persian Empire. So he puts together this plan for a holocaust. We look at it in chapter three. It says, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. Guys, this is a great example of racism. Haman felt superior to an entire race of people because of their ancestry, and he's willing to pay 10,000 talents or 10,000 pieces of silver, which in today's money, they say would be worth about $40 million. So this guy is a very wealthy guy, and he has such a hatred for the Jewish people, he's willing to put up all kinds of money to have them walk to have them wiped off the face of the earth, to exterminate all of the Jews. Well, needless to say, Mordecai hears about this, and he's upset. I mean, he's Jewish. Imagine you went home tonight, and on the television set, you hear a special news bulletin from the White House where a spokesman begins to say, we've made a decision with America's best interest in mind to make the following law. On December 13th of this year, all Christian men, women, and children will be killed, and Christianity will be utterly annihilated. Hard to even comprehend or imagine. That's what he experienced. It's unthinkable. How would you respond hearing that kind of news? Well, Queen Esther is not aware of all that's going on, so Mordecai pleads with her to use her position to take a stand on behalf of the Jews. So we look at chapter 4, and it says, Mordecai gave Haddock a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Haddock to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Haddock to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. Esther sends back a reply, which basically says, you got to be kidding, right? I can't do that. 
There's no way I can do that. You see, you have to understand that the law stated that even the queen could not go to the king uninvited. Guys, you have to be summoned by the king, and he had the authority to put someone to death if they didn't follow the exact protocol. And I'm sure Esther's thinking about how easily the king dethroned Queen Vashti. That when Mordecai heard Esther's hesitancy, well, he turned up the heat. He turned up the pressure. I mean, look at verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Mordecai basically says three things to Esther. He says, number one, don't think that just because you were in the king's house, you will escape this Holocaust. You will be put to death just like the rest of us when it's discovered that you are Jewish. Number two, he says, if you don't do something, well, God's gonna use someone else. Listen, guys, God always has a plan. We just said that. And you and I are part of this plan. But if we refuse to do what God has called us to do, he's just gonna move on and use someone else. But friends, here's the problem with that. Some of you say, well, you know, that's fine. I let God use somebody else. I don't wanna do it. But friends, the problem with that is that we miss the opportunity to serve God and we miss the blessings that are gonna come with our obedience. Guys, have you ever let an opportunity slip away? You knew you should do one thing, but you did another? Has it ever been in your power to help someone, but you chose instead to look the other way? Well, it's not that you chose to do evil. That's not what I'm saying. You just chose to ignore God, to be a non-participant, to do nothing. You see, I think the real tragedy, listen to me, I think the real tragedy for Christians is not so much the sins they commit, but it's the life they fail to live. I really want that to soak in. The real tragedy is not the sins you or I commit, but it's the life we failed to live. The opportunities that we turn away from. Friends, listen to me. God will accomplish his, God will accomplish his plan with or without you. It's your choice. It's your decision. God has a purpose and plan, and he's going to accomplish that plan whether you're obedient or not which is why the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. More than anything else in the world, what God wants from you and me is our heart. More than anything else, he just wants your heart because he knows if he has your heart, you're gonna love him and you're gonna obey him because you wanna please him. When I stand before God one day, I wanna hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Way to go. The third thing he said, God has positioned you exactly where he wants you for such a time as this. Friends, I think one of the greatest lessons from this story is that God placed each one of us where we are for a time such as this. So I don't believe that you are where you are by accident. I really don't. The Bible says the steps of a righteous person are ordered of God. I believe you are where you are by divine appointment. God has you there for a purpose and for a plan. 
God put you in your family for a specific reason. He placed you in your neighborhood to be salt and light. He led you to enroll in your school to influence the other students. He put you in your place of employment to be an example of Christ's love to your coworkers. And he put you in this church to help reach a community. God placed you exactly where you are for a purpose. And I would say that until you get a hold of that, you're gonna miss the best that God has for you. Until you come to grips and believe that that's true, that God knew me before I was ever in my mother's womb. He had a purpose and a plan for me. And in Ephesians, Paul writes that he created us for good works. So God places us. He works all things. We, we talk about Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those that love him. It doesn't say that everything's good. It says that God works all things together. God's taken this situation and this situation and this situation, and he's working them together for good if we'll just trust him. Mordecai says to Esther, the reason God put you in this position is for a time such as this, Esther. This might just be the very purpose of your life. Friends, please don't ever underestimate how God wants to use you right where he has you. I believe God brought you to Northview for a time such as this. So decide you're gonna engage. Decide to run with endurance the race that he set before you. Well, after that challenge of Esther's faith, courage began to kick in. And she instructs all the Jews in Susa to spend three days praying and fasting. Why? Because Esther understood that bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. And where prayer focuses, power falls. So after a time in prayer, she tells Mordecai that she will in fact go to the king. She courageously says in the 16th verse, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, hear this. She says, my maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. It is what it is. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. This is a big deal. She knows that she is risking her life. It actually reminds me of another favorite. So this is one of my favorite Bible stories, Esther. But another one, of course, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where the king told these, these three uh, Jews that they needed to bow down and worship him. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bow down to the king. And they said, if you don't bow down to the king, we're going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And listen to what they said in Daniel chapter 3. I love this. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. In other words, they're saying, you know what? If you throw us into that furnace, we believe God's going to work a miracle. We believe that God will save us, able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, even if God doesn't work a miracle, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So we believe God's going to step in. We believe that God's going to save us from that fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're still not going to worship you. We're still not gonna worship your idols because we worship one God. It's that type of resolve. It's that type of commitment that God's looking from every one of us. When the king sees Esther, he says, okay, so what's your request? I'll give you up to half my kingdom if you want it. 
Well, Esther wasn't quite ready to make her request. I'm sure she was a bit nervous. This was a big deal, you gotta understand. So she told the king that she'd like for him to bring Haman and come to a special banquet that she was preparing. After dessert, they come. After dessert, the king again asked Esther, okay, now what is your request? She tells him, she's still not quite ready. I'm sure she's nervous. I'm sure she's scared. Maybe she, she chickened out. I don't know. But she tells him to, to bring Haman to another feast tomorrow night. Then I'll tell you. Haman must have been feeling pretty important by now. He's the only one invited to eat with the king and the queen two days in a row. It says that Haman went out happy and in high spirits. But he's, as he's walking through the palace, he spots Mordecai at the front gate. And Mordecai doesn't even acknowledge him when he walks by, which of course ticks off Haman. Yet he knows that Mordecai and all the Jews soon will be eradicated by the king's edict so he can live with it. When Haman got home, he calls all of his friends together to brag a little bit, and he tells them, you know what, I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king and her to this banquet. And you know what, she's invited us back again tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I can still see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His friends say, well, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you go, why don't you erect a 75-foot gallow and ask the king to hang Mordecai from it? Well, Haman loves that idea, and he has some worker go out, workers go out and construct the 75-foot gallow. But again, friends, God is always at work when you can't see it. So while this is going on, that same night, the king can't sleep. You might call it a case of almighty-induced insomnia or holy heartburn. I don't know but I believe that God was keeping him awake. So he asked one of his servants, could you read to me from the official records? Man, if there's anything that'll put a person to sleep, it would be reading government documents. But as the servant just happens to open up and he reads what Mordecai had done several months earlier to save his life. So he asked the servant, so what's been done to honor Mordecai for his loyalty? He's embarrassed to find out that nothing has been done. So the next morning, Haman arrives at the court to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai. But before he has a chance, the king interrupts him and asks Haman a simple question. What do you think should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Well, Haman thinks he's talking about him. So look at what he tells the king to do in chapter 6. He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Well, the king likes the idea. And he told Haman immediately, I love it. He tells him immediately to get a robe and a horse and do just exactly what he suggested to do for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Well, he obeyed what the king ordered him to do, but I'm sure his only comfort was in remembering that all the Jews would be dead in just a few weeks. So that, so that night, they show up at the palace for the queen's banquet. And once again, the king asked Esther what she wanted from him. 
This time, she got together her bold faith, and she says in chapter 7, Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people, the Jewish people, will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. This was such a huge risk because, remember, the king doesn't even know his wife's Jewish. And he now realizes that he has unknowingly signed the queen's death warrant. So he asks, who is this man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther calmly replied, the enemy is this vile Haman. Now the king flies into a rage. I mean, he just loses it. He's so angry and out of control, he just goes outside to cool down just a minute. Haman realizes, I'm done. I'm in trouble here. And so he jumps up out of his chair and he rushes over. He wants to kneel down to beg Esther to spare his life. But as he runs over to Esther, he trips, probably on a Persian rug. He trips. <laughs> And he lands on top of the queen, just as the king's walking back in the door. And the king thinks that Haman is trying to hit on his wife. Well, Haman, soldiers come in, Haman is led out of the palace and experience really some poetic justice when they decide to hang him on the very gallows he constructed for Mordecai. Because, <laughs> it's the first time anybody's applauded for hanging a man, but anyway. <laughs> Because of Esther's stand, her people are now saved. The king then gives, now, now, now Haman was an extremely wealthy man and the king gives all of Haman's estate to Esther. And King Xerxes issues a new decree written by Mordecai, which of course would be a decree to save the Jewish people. Listen guys, when everything in life seems lost, if you're a follower of Christ, please hear me. When everything in life seems lost, I just want you to know it's not. When evil seems to own the day, God still has the final say. He has a Joseph for every famine. He has a David for every Goliath. He had someone in the story of Esther, and I'm telling you, in your story, well, he has you. Life is full of divine appointments. I believe that. I have strong conviction about that. Life is full of divine appointments or opportunities. But the one that matters most is the one that's in front of you today. So friends, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna ignore it? Are you gonna start trusting God and seizing the opportunity? There's no bigger question really that you need to address. Because when you decide to trust God, when you begin to believe that God has your back, that's when you begin to thrive under pressure. That's when you begin to succeed in the purposes and the plans that God has for you. But when you back off, when you look the other way, when you're quiet, when you uh, just ignore, you are gonna miss the blessings and opportunities that God's trying to bring in your life. I'm gonna turn this over to the campus pastors. I'm gonna ask the rest of you to pray with me. Father. I just thank you and I praise you for your faithfulness, Lord. You're an amazing God. Lord, I thank you that 
you love each and every one of us and you have a purpose and plan for each of our lives that you knew us before we were ever in our mother's womb. God, you made it clear that we were created for good works. I thank you, God, that we can put our trust in you, that you have our back. I thank you, God, that you will never let us down. Help us, Lord, to trust you, not to be afraid to speak up for you. Help us, God, to all thrive under the difficulties of life. Lord, as we go into a new week, may this be the start of a week where we focus on you and trust you. Thanks, God. We love you and praise you. We just ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.